friends that coming in at the top. Today on the show, we have Henry Frayne from the band Lanterna. You might be familiar with some of Henry's other works, such as The Moon Seven Times, Ak Ak, The Syndicate. That's kind of old one, but you might know it. Lanterna has a new record coming out, Hidden Drives. It comes out June 4th. We're going to listen to a song from it in a little bit. It'll be on all the streaming platforms, wherever you get your music. Um, Henry was a cool guy. This was a thoughtful conversation. Um, it's it's interesting because music that has more space to it, which sounds like it'd be easier to make, is actually kind of the opposite. Henry gets into those challenges of recreating this music live within the interview, and with a rotating cast of musicians, it keeps that challenge fresh in a good, bad way, maybe. But this interview starts off with a question about a road, Buttermilk Lane, which was the... Uh, inspiration or at least the place where a lot of forethought for this record came out personally i find driving with the right amount of coffee those ideas come out right when you have nothing to worry about except for where you're going and you're in the moment it's a meditative thing right you're not worried about having to do anything else you're doing it you're going somewhere you're either listening to something or the cord broke and you can hear nothing so you're just thinking it's almost like a shower or, or, or a place where you're doing something that requires no thought that allows some of those like creative ideas to pop out. And uh, I think this record reflects that. So what we're going to do is we're going to listen to a track. Here is Hidden Drives off Hidden Drives by Lanterna.
Hidden Drives off Hidden Drives. Before we get to our interview, this podcast is mixed by Studio 44 CLE or Studio 44 Cleveland. If you have any audio, visual, or streamed needs, go to Studio 44 Cleveland on Facebook or Studio 44 Cleveland at gmail.com. Write the J Sparrow, and he'll make your stuff sound rad. Um, also, if you can like, rate, subscribe, uh, and review the podcast and all the podcast platforms, and we have the social media, so if you can give us a like there, that helps me keep talking to cool people like Henry and sharing those insights with you. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Henry. It's all good. Appreciate it. Um, all right, so if you're ready to jump in, I'm good. Yeah. Okay. Tell me about Buttermilk Lane. Um, it is a, a winding road that does uh, uh, link... Uh, Route one, which is the that main small two-way highway that goes from Florida to Maine, and um, it's uh, near Rockland. Thomaston is uh, Route one passes passes by uh, uh, Thomaston, Maine, and there's an enormous cement plant. I think it's Dragon Cement, and they you know a huge quarry on either side of Route one. Um, there is a a connecting road called buttermilk lane which does go south from route one before it gets to these two large towns and heads off towards the uh, saint george peninsula which um, kind of snakes down uh, to the south and this is all along uh, penobscot bay uh, in the mid coast of maine and so um, i have often wondered uh, sort of why someone decided to uh, there are other ways to get to the St. George Peninsula um, from Rockland going south on a um, pretty nice road uh, all the way down to um, uh, what is that lighthouse uh, from the film uh, uh, with uh, Tom Hanks uh, where he runs from one end of the country to the other. Oh, Forrest Gump. And, yeah. Um, so uh, there, there is a lighthouse at the, I believe, the southern end of St. George Peninsula. Uh, on Penobscot Bay that is, you know, uh, easier way to, to get there. So uh, Buttermilk Lane just sort of does connect um, um, Route 1 to this other highway that goes to the south. And it okay. really does uh, dip down into a very low, it is a, a wetland area that uh, sort of feeds the Westgig River, uh, which feeds into uh, Penobscot Bay, but it, uh, it's always a strange, uh, I, um, in Maine, I try to wonder when people decided, you know, we really need to add a road here or we, you know, this is a great idea for a road. Um, and it just, <laughs> it, it does, yeah. I think Buttermilk Lane is because it, uh, it bounces around quite a bit and back and forth winding highways and, uh, winding, uh, hidden drives and, uh, all sorts of things. So now driving down this, this is where um, the new Lanterna album kind of formed or started to become clear. Some of these songs driving and like kind of taking all this in. Yeah. And uh, I uh, kind of, I stayed somewhat um, in the interior of Maine, maybe a 20, 30 miles in. And also uh, my parents have a, um, uh, a cabin uh, okay. on the on the ocean, St. George Peninsula. So uh, just uh, I do uh, commute back and forth, and uh, you know Buttermilk Lane is one of the 
you know, five, 10 minutes of the uh, half hour journey is on Buttermilk Lane. And it's just, uh, it's where there, there are quite a few signs, uh, road signs that say hidden drives, hidden drives. And it just kind of uh, started to uh, um, link to the song as I was listening to these uh, mixes and uh, song ideas over the a couple year period and decided that it was a great, uh, great title for an album. Yeah. No, especially I got the, I got the, the advance of the record and, and make the album, uh, all these albums have this, this space. I don't know how you create this space, but there's a space to each tune. And then like I putting the, the, the title on it kind of gives that envision of maybe what you were seeing while making it and where this space is kind of being captured. And like a hidden drive has got, it's got like a very major, um, major tonality, maybe more so than the, some of the uh, previous records. Is there a re is there like a, did that come out? You think is it the tonality of some of these sites you were seeing more like I don't I don't know what what I'm trying to go with this, but I I noticed like there's a lot of like a major tonalities in this one. And um, you mean uh, major to minor or just? Yeah, it just sounded like overall I was getting like this is kind of in a major key, I think, as opposed to as opposed to like B minor, right? Which it's kind of on the tip of the tongue. <laughs> that one's in B minor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so. I, yeah, I hadn't really thought about it. Just looking at, I'm pretty sure there are quite a few uh, uh, major, you know, songs in a major key. As I, I mean, I do, uh, I do chart my songs and you know, put um, chord charts, uh, chord stamps, and all that sort of stuff. But as far as reading music and um, you know, sight reading, I I don't do that at all so i i guess i hadn't really i generally do grab the chords and start recording and then you know chart uh, verse chorus verse chorus and kind of hadn't really uh, thought about that but i have you know friends and you know people in the past have you know mentioned uh you know this is a very major song or a minor song and it um, i would say that yes this this album did have you know happened to have just some some more of the major uh, tone to it, uh, major uh, scale and and such in some of the songs, and that just happened because of the songs that uh, kind of floated to the top. And mm. I for this album, I did have uh, you know a few years ago, kind of got all the song sketches together, and it may have been twenty or thirty songs. So uh, sort of these were the ones that kind of uh, all got finished at about the same time and it was like okay that that seems like a good album and uh, from the past when uh, you know in the 90s uh, i noticed you know uh, it seemed like everyone was trying to fill up a cd or at least i was with the bands i was in and it kind of now when we get to the vinyl era it does kind of say well how do you how do you side a vinyl that's uh, 70 minutes long you know that's like yeah one and a half sides or you know that's three sides of an album what do you do with the fourth side um so uh, i'm it seems like a good idea of starting with uh, a couple years ago with uh, highways i think was a nine song album and then um a 10 song album seemed to be that's perfect uh, five songs aside if you do vinyl and um at the time before the beatles 
American bands would put out albums with 12 songs, so you have six on each, right? And the Beatles would do um, 14, so you have seven on each, and then that became the standard was to do 14 songs. And I was like, I never thought of it like that. But like, when you start to think of some of the physicality of capturing this space and putting it on something physical, then you gotta like put that into perspective. Um, but like, uh, so a lot of these tunes you track. How do you? So how does like a composition come about? Because like I I read that you take a lot of these uh these progressions and you write them down and you have a lot of cassettes floating around you, like you just little uh. Storage bits, are you recording, like, are you recording melody lines or, like, chord progressions? It's, um, it's probably, um, uh, both, but, um, I always sort of try and, um, I've found that, you know, you turn on your equipment, sit down, you know, there's an echo or a reverb, uh, the first chord you grab is, like, you know, the can really lead to something. It's just mm. uh, so many songs just like, Oh, that's interesting. There's a, you know, there's one open note there's a B ringing there and uh, I can change the bass uh, with my thumb. So a lot of these are, uh, although it's not going to be the final uh, uh, way that I write something or record something, but at that beginning stage, it is, it does have something to do with, uh, you know, can I play this all with just one guitar and mm. with moving the bass around and um, you know using some drone notes so that there's an open A here or a low E there and then I can do a little melody. So I guess it would be chords and melody. Although you know uh, in the multi-tracking phase you can sort of do all that separately. However, ironically, it does come back to the um, you know me being uh, somewhat uh, on a budget as a as a as a band, yeah. uh, a solo artist. Um, you know, working with uh, Eric Jabot, a drummer from Chicago, uh, I do end up trying to, uh, you know, if I do play live shows now and then, it is, you know, me trying to uh, create that all at once. So ironically, how the songs begin are sort of how they get to their live stage of can I do this all um, just, uh, um, you know, with my own fingers uh, on a six string guitar. But in um, in the mid 90s, I did. Um, I was uh, playing guitar with the Moon Seven Times uh, here in Champaign, and uh, I did really want to be able to uh, kind of, uh, when uh, jamming uh, with the band, I did want to be able to, or on my own, be able to move the bass line, you know, and play, you know, more chords. So I did uh, buy one of the uh, Roland PK-5s. Uh, which is the uh, just MIDI pedals, and I oh, bought a vintage okay. keys by uh, the uh, one of the synth makers, and uh, so you know suddenly I was able to sort of just play drone notes and then play chords that didn't necessarily have um, all the bass notes uh, right there. So that was a you know all of what 25 years ago. It was a, a wonderful sort of thing, and a lot of songs on. Uh, hidden drives definitely came from that, you know, being able to just sort of play bass notes and uh, uh, sort of jam with a drummer or on my own and uh, play, play chords. And it sort of expanded my ability to kind of uh, um, get more out of uh, the bass lines or uh, the chords and melodies that I was playing. That's beautiful. It's a beautiful, like circle, right. Of it starts, how it starts is how the end product ends up being. 
And uh, it's almost it's interesting with a lot of bands. There's that whole like you write the song one way, you record it like all um, with all the the bells and whistles because you're in the studio and you can do that. And when it's live, there's a more real approach to it. Do you do like a lot of looping? No, I don't at all. And I, wow. I, okay. I have had, I have had some friends who, um, definitely, you know, have looping pedals and, yeah, yeah. um, uh, but I, I just, uh, it's something I, um, I should, it's just, I haven't taken that, uh, that technical step, uh, just cause I'm, I'm still kind of working through this and I don't know in my lifetime if I'll ever get to the <laughs> point of, okay, I'm, I'm done working this way. And I, uh, looping would really, and I, I think that, you know, at some point I should, you know, check it out because it could really, uh, some of the things I'd like to do uh, live would probably be, you know, perfect for that kind of uh, being able to play over uh, certain uh, simple parts. So, right. um, yes, it's something that is <laughs> probably long overdue. And uh, I have, I've had someone particularly ask me, like, you should really, you know, check it out, check out looping. But what you can do without the looping pedal, like the the compositions you have with with a hidden drives, is like they're all beautiful. And if you're doing that without it, like with it with that like uh, extra support, you know what I mean? Like you can go double that. But it's amazing. That's amazing. You have this this uh, and you I, I and I get it. It's what you've learned how to write with. So that's why that's why you can do it the best you can, and that's why it sounds as good as it does because that's how you learned how to do it. Um, but I'm sorry, I I thought I was, I, did I cut you off? Oh, I was just going to say there was a, um, at some point, uh, was, a, a trying to think uh, live of, you know, all sorts of ways that I could do, um, something more than, you know, the guitar sound and, you know, possibly looping, but also, um, having the bass line and, uh, for the, the last record backyards in 2015, I did, uh, I did get together with um, Eric Jabot, the drummer who's recorded with me for um, several records, uh, not uh, Backyards, since he was in Japan with his uh, the Blue Ooh. Man group there. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, for wow. several years. Um, and uh, Louis Simon played uh, drums on the uh, uh, Backyards uh, record, but uh, uh, he's um, not in the Midwest. Uh, so I, for this, uh, latest record uh, Eric Jabot was back from Japan and he did play drums on this uh, hidden drives record. And so uh, he was back in 2015 as well. And so he did play some live shows with me and we played a few on the East coast and I've always been trying to figure out ways to, uh, you know, if there's a, another thing I could do to uh, have um, more sounds uh, triggering or, and I did uh, had a cousin who had a, um, a set of the Roland PK5s, and I did uh, end up, you know, buying them from him. And I've had those sitting around, thinking that maybe, you know, in the course of playing a song with uh, the drummer um, Eric Jabot, uh, could somehow, you know, have those pedals and just sort of, you know, hit a note that would trigger some sort of keyboard sound that would sort of uh, develop over a couple of notes. But I have not gotten to that stage yet, but it would be nice to be able to do that sort of uh, thing. Um, the other thing is just as we were starting a, a couple of dates on the East coast in 2015, we, uh, he flew out to Boston and I met him there with his drums and, uh, 
I had my stuff. Um, and you know, the night before playing a couple of shows, he said, you know, I could really, uh, you know, I do have this, um, uh, this earpiece and I do have this little um, sampler box or, or something that, um, uh, he can play to, uh, play to a clip track basically. Hmm. Okay. Uh, and so he, you know, he said, you know, if you have your delay times, um, you know, why don't you just, uh, you know, figure out the tempo with those delay times and, you know, going into a whole different section of my different kind of delay times. Uh, you know, as you notice, I sometimes play off of the different beats and I, I can never really quite remember if it's a dotted eighth note or if it's a, a quarter note delay, but it just seems to feel right. And whichever song it is, it kind of feels right if I'm playing to that uh, clicky delay or gotcha. the delay that's more of the... and so uh just this 2015 small tour you know he said well yeah sure and so he you know in his earpiece which he's used to playing to a click track all the time uh he um for the shows uh, sort of for the first time playing with a drummer who's on a click track so my delays were you know like right on um because uh, generally over the years i've just sort of kind of clicked at the beginning and uh, got in time with um uh, the drummer and then you know we'd play a song and i'd some the delays would kind of be what they were and uh, it's not always <laughs> yeah that could sort of you know i sort of float and all that but it was kind of interesting to actually uh, end this out of course didn't happen when we were rehearsing but it was the night before the show he was like oh yeah i can do this fine i'll just type in my um, tempos and you know you'll be and it was interesting to you know suddenly really get on beat with a song uh some older songs like brightness or b minor you mentioned to really yeah. have those uh those kind of uh click back uh, uh feedback envelope type uh delays that were just like perfectly um in in sync so that was a different experience to to finally kind of do that and i know click tracks and all that sort of thing are uh, very old uh, technology but it, it was kind of fun to do that but they're efficient you know what i mean like the, I was wondering live how how is this done? Like I I know live everything gets changed a bit, but there's such an atmospheric um, soundscape, sonic soundscape with your music. Hot live, you you gotta find a way to be able to do that. And with with a drum, like in a lot, you, how you point out, a lot of delays do have like um, like a tempo at the beginning of it. So I was like, maybe that's it. But that makes sense. And like I bet that that had to be like awesome to have like a drummer that has a click now now like we're in it we're going to do great tonight and tomorrow night <laughs> like yeah it it really it was kind of a fun uh, I, I i thought of actually kind of um i've known uh, some drummers uh, uh, there's a drummer here in champaign who talked about he was out in LA and he worked with a guy who did uh, sort of a solo show with a drummer and he had all his uh, you know, all the songs were basically, you know, on a click track, but there was also a guide track. And, you know, this may be real common knowledge to sorts of uh, bands that do this sort of thing. But his uh, uh, the click track that this guy had who hired drummers uh, basically had, you know, uh, you know, Phil coming up in four measures or four beats and, you know, changed a chorus and all that sort of descriptive stuff. So that, I mean, sometimes uh, the problem that I do, you know, uh, especially, you know, working with, um, you know, any, anyone uh, that's not me is sort of like, you know, of course, you know, I basically know how silent Hills 
uh, from the first Lanterna record goes or how B minor goes or how many times I do this. There are no, you know, you're just sort of in B minor, you, you play that chord progression four times, then you go to that middle section with the E minor and then you come back and then there's a pause and then back into the next, what I call verse. But um, it, it can be somewhat, uh, I would think it'd be, it is someone like, well, how many times, I mean, for a drummer, it's just like, just keep playing the beat, but there are, you know, major changes that do come up that need to, uh, where the beat changes right. and things like that. Or uh, playing with a bass player when I, I've gone to Greece, I have a friend, uh, Nikos, uh, and uh, a drummer named Billy, who I did do some shows with uh, 10 years ago. And so without the vocals, without those sort of key um uh, lines or cues it is somewhat uh, difficult and so i do find myself sort of moving in the same way when we're about to come up to a change sort of turning slightly or lifting my guitar or you know acting like to some big dramatic change so that maybe the people i'm playing with will kind of look and say oh yeah henry's about to change yeah because yeah when i do you know and i i do have to kind of uh, get myself to uh, when i'm playing these songs to somehow you know, remember that, yes, I'm supposed to change in, you know, four measures, uh, there is a change coming and, you know, we pause or, and so that's somewhat uh, because there's a lack of vocal or a lack of uh, cues. And right. the other thing, as you mentioned, it, you know, some of these songs, uh, yes, it it is, uh, it is tough because in the multi-tracking world, there are, there is an ability to add those sort of melody lines in the background and uh, sort of things going on as well. So, you know, just one guitar, you know, I try to do, um, you know, the chords on the lower end and then hopefully do some high notes and some ringing notes. And, um, and I haven't gotten too much into alternate tunings since I pretty much travel with just one guitar, although I should have a backup with me. Um, it is living dangerously. <laughs> exactly. I mean, with a, you know, when you, uh, especially going to Greece, there's right. no way I was going to bring two guitars, but I could always have one uh, on stage, but just there's kind of that like, Oh, I broke a string and I haven't, I haven't broken a string on stage in years. And it would just be like, Whoa, okay. Now I need to change strings quickly. Um, no pressure. And, it's I turn, I put it on right. I didn't put it on backwards. How's it going, everybody? We're like, that's the worst. <laughs> yeah. Um, how was Greece? What was it like playing over there? Um, it was a really, uh, you know, really special experience. I, I'd sort of um, put off going to Greece for um, so many years. I mean, it had just a couple of opportunities to uh, go to Europe in, uh, since the 80s. Um, and it... Uh, I, when I was in the moon seven times, I happened to make a trip uh, when our first record came out in 93 and um, I kind of the record company was uh, had an office in New York, but they also had London and uh, Amsterdam offices. So I did sort of travel around a little bit just as a, you know, a member of the band kind of visiting and and I did have an opportunity either, you know, I can go to Greece, I can get a flight to Greece or I can go to Finland. And for some reason, I went to Finland. And so. Uh, I both sound missed, cool. <laughs> yeah, it was it was definitely glad I did, but it it kept me from going to Greece uh, until um, 
2005. And in 2004, um, you know, you mentioned the song B minor, which is from the Elm Street record, uh, the first record that came out on Bad Man, the second right. uh, of the Lanterna records. And I, you know, I can, I can sort of say, you know, oh, you know, that Elm Street record was, you know, somewhat popular in Greece, or, I mean, I can say that, but it sort of, I, I found that, you know, when I went there, that people actually did kind of know that record or knew the song B minor. And That's sick. Um, I don't know yeah. if they were just sort of like, like, oh yeah, you know, this guy from America, of course, we're going to say we know his, his music, but um, it, for whatever, you know, uh, distribution, it seemed like, um, you know, uh, Badman uh, really had, um, there was some sort of either airplay or some, uh, some of the radio shows in Athens or other cities. Uh, there had been some, uh, some play. So um, in 2004, uh, my friend, uh, this someone, uh, Nikos, uh, emailed me and said, I'm, you know, I'm putting together a, a club on the Peloponnesus in a town called Astros. And I'm, you know, going to, I'm still uh, remodeling this old, what used to be a shelter uh, called, um, uh, in Greek, it's a uh, kataphigio, is a uh, shelter. It's where people sheltered uh, during various times in yeah. history. <laughs> and um, so he's still working on the club, but he said, you know, next year, 2005, I'd love to invite you to come and play two shows at, at the club here in Astros. And uh, so um, I was like, oh, you know, sure, uh, can uh, hopefully figure that out with my, you know, regular job at a public radio station. And, you know, it was the summertime, so I, I was able to, you know, uh, schedule it and, you know, go over and uh, spend some time there. And it, it was the start of kind of uh, about eight trips over there in the next five years. And so it was a real, wow. uh, definitely yeah. a great experience playing in uh, that uh, sort of completely different world from Champaign-Urbana, right. Illinois, Midwest, right. um, and especially the summertime, uh, some winter time. But the um, uh, just the, the ability or uh, to be able to play and you know have people come out, you know, the, who just uh, seem to come out when you know a band uh, plays a show, uh, as opposed to sometimes in the Midwest, it's you know it is difficult to kind of you know, to kind of get audiences to come out on certain nights or if it's not, you know, quite the bill that they want to see or, if, you know, I don't play that often. So it's hard to, you know, hard to know what kind of draw there will right. be. Right. No, it's it's a completely different different um, set of challenges. It's okay. We got the gig, but it's a Tuesday night and I don't think they're going to hire us for the Friday because it's a Tuesday night. We can't bring that many people on Tuesday. It's a whole different mentality. Um, but that's interesting. Like, um, I have a friend who plays bazooki and he goes to Greece every like year and, um, Greece, Greek music is really interesting. And it's interesting that, um, they like, cause it's all in like a lot of it's in like nine, eight, very like, um, middle Eastern influenced. Did any of that kind of like influence, um, the space you capture in your music? Like the idea of playing off a drone is very kind of Eastern, like um idea like as far as like uh making a melody off one note type deal i think um the i was working on um uh, one of the uh, the record that came out desert ocean in 2006 yeah so i was sort of finishing that up um, when i got back from my first greek trip and 
of sort of definitely um, kind of just that whole experience uh, traveling through Italy and, and then to Greece uh, did, you know, kind of uh, put a new light on the songs that I was uh, finishing up at that time. So. Okay. Yeah. So it, it's interesting. Like, did this, uh, hearing, hearing a whole like sonic scape, like you make, um, did like kind of looking at your career building up to it, like working with a band like Akak, right? Um, that has a that has its own space too. Like, where did this kind of like, where did that come from? Like, where do you can you trace a point where you're like, we're drawn to a, a sound that was a bit more fuller than maybe just a guitar coming out of an amp, you know? Yeah, I, um, I. Uh, saw an ad for uh, Akak was looking for um, a guitarist. Um, uh, just in 1984, they were starting to play live more, and so um, I did see an ad and answered it and went and tried out. And I think right at that time, I had um, uh, picked up a Memory Man, uh, was Electro okay. Harmonics. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so it was just just starting to, and so when I kind of tried out or, you know, started to uh, uh, integrate into that band, when I, they asked me to join, um, it's definitely a, um, you know, the band was kind of formed, uh, they had formed it around uh, group composition where, you know, everyone kind of uh, has input and they write, you know, we, in that band, it was like a year and a half, two years. Um, it was just like, you know, I was in college at the time, but, you know, we rehearsed like five nights a week or Damn. it was just constantly yeah. writing. And so I would say that that was the first, um, experience of even, even though those songs were, you know, upbeat and sort of very, uh, vocal, uh, right. based, Prepared. um, I definitely did start to, you know, learn about, you know, chords and, uh, uh, writing uh, with with other people, but sort of making, uh, uh, putting my sound in, you know, with uh, with the bass guitar and the synthesizer and the drums and uh, sort of, especially with uh, uh, Joe Strell, the bass player. You know, I would just be able to sort of play, uh, you know, a couple of notes uh, in succession, and you know, he would sort of change the bass around that so that it would. Uh, even though I was just playing the same notes over and over, his uh, his bass lines and the keyboard lines would sort of change them or make them uh, sound uh, much different or, you know, give a different angle uh, to them. That, it's interesting that, like, they, um, as a band from the rip that wants everyone to write, like, a lot of times it, I feel like a lot of bands are like, one guy wrote the thing and we we make it together type deal. Um, so it's interesting that it was that that was kind of like a common practice for the the, the group is like everyone had to find a way to write their way into it. Is that kind of what started like is that where you started writing was with Akak and onward or were you writing before? Um, no, that was uh, pretty much it. I'd uh, back in uh, uh, high school. I was in a high school band, the Syndicate, okay. and. Uh, uh, did have you know a couple of songs was just the beginning uh, beginning uh, writing phase you know? and so uh, it it really wasn't until i 
joined ACAC that I, you know, did, you know, we're writing, you know, all the time. Every rehearsal is either rehearsing for a show or, you know, a writing session. And um, I would say, you know, I, I always think to myself uh, when I talk to them, I wish they would have given me the instructional video on <laughs> what group composition is. Cause I remember, I mean, the, the band was sort of formed, um, uh, ACAC was formed, you know, sort of as this um, sort of experiment in, you know, group composition. And for the first year or two, they just kind of um, uh, rehearsed in this uh, railway uh, railway hotel uh, right by the railroad tracks in downtown Champaign, and which was the the apartment, this very narrow apartment building sort of built onto the side of another building was became known as the ACAC Hotel because there <laughs> were so awesome. many um, so many members of the band, not myself, uh, lived there, but also other bands, a, a band called the Breeders, which was from Champaign, not the, uh, not the Breeders. The breeders. But... Um, but they were uh, in the mid 80s, there were uh, there was a band called uh, the Breeders with a single called Zen Punk uh, was there. So all sorts of bands lived in this uh, apartment uh, block. And uh, it's definitely you know music all the time and bands rehearsing all the time, similar to just a, a practice studio right. uh, in downtown Chicago or something. But uh, back in those days, it was quite, you know, you'd walk in and just there'd be music uh, coming from everywhere. And so it was definitely with uh, ACAC that sort of started to, do that um you know composition it was somewhat difficult because we didn't have a you know i saw someone today um uh, someone who's building uh, amplifiers in chicago yeah. had a picture of his uh, his design room and he had a dry erase board there and he was like that was the most brilliant thing i've ever come up with having <laughs> that board for orders coming in orders going out what i'm working on and so ACAC, uh, to get back to ACAC, didn't, I mean, we didn't have any sort of board. It was all just sort of like, well, how many times we're we doing this? And what are you calling one part? And what am I yeah. calling one part? <laughs> and so it, it was a, an interesting uh, cauldron as we all sort of uh, pushed and pulled. And I wish, you know, I, I had sort of like, gee, I, I really wanted the song to turn out this way. It's just like, well, that's not what, you know, <laughs> this is, is is about. But everyone sort of, you know, give, gave and took and, you know, finally kind of got to things, got to a, you know, this is the final uh, arrangement. It sounds like that would be either super efficient and nice group collective activity, but I bet it wasn't a lot of the times. So I bet there was some headbutting <laughs> going on because there was yeah, no other at certain times <laughs> having that board makes it clear though it's a good point <laughs> yeah I, I often wonder why why didn't we you know it's just this sort of maybe it was all uh, uh all uh, theory or uh, just has to be in your in your head and so um uh, as i was uh you know, moving through um working with akak uh, we did we were approached by a small local record company uh, run by uh, Steve Jones and and um, is in a band uh, with uh, he and another gentleman were a band called The Arms of Someone New, which was a okay. sort of a recording project, never played live, but they put out an, a single, an album, and then another album. And uh, in the summer of 85, they approached us and said, you know, hey, we've come to a couple of shows and we've so far we've just put out Arms of Someone New albums. 
but we want to put out, you know, an ACAC single. And so we got, we put out a single and then a 12 inch uh, three song single and um, got to start working with them, uh, which eventually led to um, uh, Steve Jones and uh, the keyboardist from ACAC, Lynn Canfield. Um, he had her sing on some synthesizer pieces he was working on and mm. uh, they asked me to, to play some guitar and then uh, in the future they sort of formed a band called area which is okay. i would say uh, getting to you know when i started to kind of play in a more uh, fuller style or definitely uh, maybe with uh, with drum machine or maybe you know more songs uh, without uh, drums was definitely uh, when I started uh, kind of composing uh, songs uh, to bring into the band area and have uh, Lynn Canfield put on uh, vocals or work on the keyboardists uh, ideas. And like working, so from moving out, like the kind of getting, getting stuff out, you know, ACAC, well, which is ACAC, which is like one ACK away from being like that Minuteman tune. Was that anything yeah. to do with ACAC, ACAC, ACAC? <laughs> or um, just happened to be ACAC? I think the uh, uh, the first car guitarist uh, Tim Stevens just uh, opened up a dictionary and oh, okay <laughs> uh, put down his finger and I think I think that's how Akak was uh, the name was arrived at. All right, didn't go too far, <laughs> not too far into the dictionary. Um, yeah, but uh, so from getting these kind of like writing chops out of the way and then moving into area, was there like a when you came in with like the idea of expand going more vast with your sonic uh a reach was there something that just clicked that this is right or this is what i've been trying to get at with like a group like akak and like because um i've listened to i found a few of the singles on them on the googles with akak and like there there's space to it like it's like a even though there's it's more like uh it's not as like flowy as like um the moon seven times you know, there's still this atmospheric uh, point to it. And, like, so I, I couldn't find anything on area. But, like, is that where it started to, like, it, was that something you were trying to get out of ACAC? Or, like, I, I'm always interested in where this, like, idea of, like, um, capturing the space come from. Like, because when you hear something like that, it had to have come from something before. Um, I guess, I mean, the... Um, uh... Akak, although they had been, uh, you know, just a living room project for almost two years, they uh, suddenly, when I joined, they uh, just started to book more shows, and then, <laughs> you know, we yeah. really turned into kind of a live band. So there was a sort of a uh, the ride of, uh, you know, these songs are going to be performed live, and uh, uh, there was a, you know, sort of like a hidden drives, um, just that kind of uh, the uh, the sense of uh, speed and you know right. it's sort of somewhat out of control sometimes but there was a lot of uh, the songs were obviously more of a band a rock band kind of feel so with area uh, you know just was kind of working on my own I'd just gotten a Tascam 4 track and okay. so I did you know I would just put uh, for the first uh, area tape and the first album I kind of put some you know songs on a four track and then uh, gave the tape to Steve Jones and you know thinking oh we'll work this up into something we'll arrange it and you know for a number of the songs from the first 
uh, batch of area songs. It was just like, no, oh, that sounds great. I put it onto my A track and Lynn uh, did vocals on it and here it is. And so uh, there was just this uh, very almost experimental or just like whatever I was going to give him, you know, generally we weren't going to re-record it. It was just whatever I, I gave him. And those were sort of guitar um, ideas or um, in some cases I, I meant him to put it into his Tascam four track, which runs at three and three quarter. And instead oh. he put it into his cassette machine and, you know, so he, um, you know, dropped it down a whole octave. And so there are a couple <laughs> of, there's one specific yeah. area song that is just, you know, completely sort of um, flowing tones and low, you know, bass kind of strings and things. And that's just the, uh, you know, I, you know, I told him to put it into his task jam at the higher speed. But, and so that song, you know, just became uh, a uh, Lynn sang over that. And so it was what it was. So it was a, a project just like, you know, who knows what's going to happen. It's much more uh, uh, kind of a see what works. That's, that's funny. It's crazy. Like the accidents like that, that make the whole, the whole thing different and you build off of that the paranoids like <laughs> of the of the of the batch of tunes that kind of almost yeah. throw away ideas that become a whole thing um yeah so uh, your dad taught you how to use tape machines right yes and like is that kind of what i mean made this technology appeal aside from the fact that to track stuff you know that's what you used yeah i i i did um a I don't know if all tape machines, uh, my dad had bought a, um, a Revox, uh, okay. quarter inch, uh, machine and, uh, you know, on the, the little dial for each channel, they did allow you that two to one or one to two, you were able to, uh, bounce, um, sort of, uh, bounce to the, the other channel while you were adding something. So you could bounce back and forth. Um, and you could also create echo effects, uh, with the same thing. And, you know, I never, uh, you know, in the early eighties, I did sort of get to use it uh, quite a bit more and sort of bouncing back and forth. And so it's kind of strange that it took me until 1986 to buy a four track machine. <laughs> um, and I wish I would have, uh, when I moved up to the Tascam eight track half inch, I sort of got rid of my four track, which I kind of regretted. And uh, when they were still making them, in the late nineties, I did buy one again, but there was something just so wonderful about having a couple of tracks to, uh, to multi-track on. And I honestly, I still, um, I have been working at a studio, so, um, I really haven't gotten my, you know, digital home system up and running yeah. uh, in any real way. I'm still, um, kind of planning to, um, with a new computer and, uh, and such i hope to kind of finally start to do some overdubbing or things at home here and i've uh, you know a few minutes ago i did want to mention uh, that i i do you know record with uh, mike brosco uh, and have since about i guess it was uh, 2002 and uh, he has a studio uh, he had a studio in champagne and they moved out to muhammad which is nearby and now he's moving back to champagne with his studio What's it called? Um, but, What's the studio? Um, uh, Waterworks Audio. Gotcha. Okay. And um, as I said, I um, uh, someone recommended him um, after I'd done the uh, the Sands 
album in 2002. I was sort of trying to figure out how to get, you know, uh, get uh, working with a drummer again. For the Sands record, I did work with a friend and we just did some uh, beats on a Roland thing. And uh, so the the Sands record was definitely kind of a a home uh, studio uh, record and as well as the first lanterna record was definitely drums recorded at home on an a-track and overdubbed and all that so i uh, in 2003 i did want to kind of start uh you know get a get a sound right. uh, with a drummer and so uh, when you mentioned the spaces and uh, of some of the songs on the new record or other records uh, mike brasco definitely has been you know, he uh, likes to kind of manipulate sound and work with all of the, uh, you know, if I just, you know, kind of record a guitar part where he's going to kind of take some pieces here and there and run it through a delay. And um, that's really uh, sort of what adds a lot of the space to uh, some okay. of the last okay. uh, four records that he's worked on with me. So, and it's, you know, it's almost been 19 years now that uh, he and I have been uh, working together and so it's been uh, really enjoy having someone to kind of just uh, basically know what you know know what it's supposed to sound like and kind of add his own uh, stamp as a producer and an engineer and uh, it's really uh, really fun to work with him and just having someone that you can depend upon getting your vision out yeah i think that's really like when you're recording anything it's even even when you're doing it by yourself and you show it to someone else, there's that there's that immediate like trust to show somebody to get that first honest opinion. And like if you're unless you're in a studio working with someone that gives you that feedback right away. But um but I think that relationship is equally as important as say the, the between the drummer and bass player or whatever. Like or another person within the band. Cause that is that's the final like kind of say well that was the take or do it again. Um, and also to kind of touch upon like, uh, using the tape deck, having only is there, there's like a thing to limited choices. Like, I feel like, um, if there's a limited amount of, um, what you can put on it, what you put on it is going to matter more so than adding a bunch of extra stuff that you don't need. So having less and being able to be more creative in a more refined, smaller space leads to a better output, I think. Yeah, it, um, and I mean, one would think that, you know, well, we have 24 tracks now, or we have, you know, um, I mean, I guess just there, there is a limit to just how much, uh, how much information you can eventually yeah. uh, mix, mix down. So I am uh, sort of amazed at sort of some of the, uh, some of the eight track recordings that, you know, it's like three tracks are drums, bass, guitar, two guitars, and then, you know, with Lanterna, you don't have to worry about uh, vocals usually. So there are other, but I'm surprised looking over some of the old tracks. It's like, oh, we only use seven tracks, or there are only six here, or huh. there's only, yeah. we only used four. Um, <laughs> so it is, you know, it's all about um, kind of the, the mix down and how you process the tracks and such. So you don't necessarily need uh, many more, but it's, um, there is something very, um, basic about just having a couple of tracks to work with and um, something I never really did much of, but the, you know, mixing down and then bouncing back a stereo 
uh, mix onto, you know, and then adding more tracks, you know, does make you uh, force you to make decisions about, you know, okay, this is how the drums, bass, and bass guitar are gonna are all gonna fit in the mix, and then we're gonna add stuff on top of that. And you know, you mentioned, you know, Beatles records and all those sorts of things. They were always doing those sorts of bouncing and right. you know uh, pre-mixing and you just have to uh, it it does i've you know heard hearing producers talk about such things you uh it uh becomes obvious that it is a very creative part of it because you've you know you've you've decided that's how that's going to sound like so everything you do after that is is uh responding to the way that the drums and the bass and guitar basic guitar sound and you're really um you're you're basically cutting new tracks or final vocal tracks to the final mix of the basic tracks and that's different from we're just going to do everything on 24 tracks and you know you're you might be cutting vocals to scratch guitar because the guitar hasn't been put down yet um so and that's a very classic you know that's why some of those records do sound the way they do uh, i would think Definitely, definitely, because once they're once they're bounced down, you know, on tape, that's that's as loud as it's gonna get. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's that's the drum mix to some degree. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but that okay. So like, with uh, when did like was kind of taking a step backwards? Your dad was showing you how to like do the do the. Um, um, I lost my my train of thought, but using how to use a tape machine and take one thing and bounce it to another. When did guitar get in your hand? When was like guitar your mode of expression? Did was there like did your dad play guitar too? Was there like um when, what brought you to the guitar? Um I think it was a, a friend's dad had a uh, had a Yamaha acoustic uh you know sunburst uh which he uh, for some reason he <laughs> he was very you know uh, no brands kind of guy. And he had, and he was also a woodworker and, you know, uh, built pipe organs or installed pipe organs, maybe into churches and things. That's cool. Um, he had, he had taken off the, uh, you know, the Yamaha from the guitar and sort of refinished it. So it just, it was a guitar with no, um, with no label on it. But um, I remember, you know, coming up into uh, just before my freshman year of high school, I think, you know, you know, there was this guitar and, you know, maybe traveling to a music store instead of looking at the guitars and just, it, you know, there's that, perhaps everyone has that feeling of, well, oh, this isn't my thing. Cause I have a friend who does that and right. that's his thing. Or yeah. it just didn't really occur to me in being around uh, my friend's guitar or going to the music shops. It's like, maybe I, maybe I could be a guitarist. Although I was very, uh, very much into music at that time of uh, the things you'd be listening to as a 13 year old in 1978. Um, and so it, it, it didn't occur to me until, uh, you know, and I've, uh, <laughs> I've sort of mentioned this enough times, but uh, that it, I, uh, my friends certainly know that it was after going to a, uh, there was a foreigner concert here in Champaign yeah. at the uh, assembly hall, the big arena. And just um, I'd seen uh, Boston a few weeks before, and then uh, there was this concert and there would be other concerts that freshman year, but it was definitely in the fall of 78. I was just like, 
after that concert, just for some reason, I was like, I just have to call and, you know, get guitar lessons and try, you know, try and see, you know, if I can learn how to play guitar. And it was uh, definitely a an experience that just uh, sent me on my way. The um, Interestingly, I mean, I, I wouldn't hear that uh, the first King Crimson record for a couple of years, but, you know, it was kind of funny to see a Foreigner concert with Ian McDonald uh, playing, you know, guitar, but also he did this uh, tremendous flute solo in the middle of uh, one of the Foreigner songs, Star Rider. Oh, yeah, and yeah. so it was just this, you know, uh, King Crimson, he, with King Crimson, he did one U.S. tour that the band sort of fell apart, I believe, at the end of it in 69. And uh, so... Uh, it was kind of fun to be able to see him performing with a you know a band that was really riding high and right, you know, right. to have a a band that had a flute solo section <laughs> of a concert at Assembly <laughs> Hall where there are usually basketball games and and uh, monster truck rallies. That that's a, wow! But foreign, like it's interesting. Foreigner, Foreigner in uh, Boston, their Foreigner's greatest hits in Boston. Uh, the first record were my first two. Uh, two cds i was begifted and um wow right and it's like those are two like even though they you know they are kind of poppy compared to king crimson they still they still kick you know what i mean like boston they rip on that i'm trying to think of the guitar player from um foreigner mick jones i think that's his name yeah 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 because i would always mix him up with because he's the same guy from the clash they, yeah. they rips too i mean there was something to writing a song like that and being able to deliver it and like, but th that's it. That once you see it's possible and see what that thing can do. So after that, you got the guitar and you started taking the lessons and did it click? It just. Yeah, it was uh, certainly sort of uh, first it was a rented nylon string uh, guitar, but then um, I did somehow you know, had enough money from uh, a newspaper route to get a, uh, a Lotus uh, nice. Les Ball copy. Yeah. Um, and a crate amplifier. And, you know, uh, it was sort of the long road to starting to buy uh, new or better, trying to uh, search for that perfect sound. Um, and my uh, my guitar teacher uh, was somewhat of a, a jazz uh, guy. And so, uh, you know, I someone asked me recently, well, did he did that, you know, influence you somehow, you know, the you know, the sort of expanded chords he was trying to teach you. Cause I would see, you know, kind of bring in a song I wanted to learn how to play and, you know, be some sort of rock song. And he'd be like, okay, yeah, let's go through this. And yes, it's the G and then, but, um, he, uh, um, th there was also, also that influence of the jazz, um, chords and, and, you know, things that I do still, you know, know to put in here or there. I, I there, I think he, uh, taught me an appreciation of those uh, and sort of adding this sort of theory, a little bit of theory to right. you know, my, my guitar lessons and things. I think, yeah, with theory, it's like, there's like players theory and there's like compositional theory and comp, you know, I mean, there's music theory in one, but if I had to come up with like two weird categories to kind of explain it. And it seems like, like players theory is just, just enough that you know when you come across a minor seven flat five or something, you're like, oh, that's that's going somewhere. You know what I mean? Like the idea of how to play over certain things. 
where like compositional theory it would be you know like writing four point four part like voicings and once you get to a dominant the middle must resolve down you know it becomes way more structured and less mm-hmm. not playing you're not playing with it but those little tricks and tips really the I don't know what what your guitar teacher taught you but like some the few that my guitar teacher taught me when you find when you run into that chord or that situation and you remember that one little bit you know it it, it pays off <laughs> yeah um it, it that's a so it kind of, and you know with jazz too there's like the Coltrane and like the Miles Davis like kind of approach with that in a weird way like kind of that vastness too right like when you got the modal the modal I can talk today. The modal movements of like um, so what or impressions by um, Miles and Coltrane, like there's that like kind of space that's built up and letting one note ring, and letting that resolve and have like that note last as long as it needs to last. Like there's something to like to that type of improv that I think pays off in all forms of music, or or or, or um, maybe not pays off, but like makes more musicality makes makes more of, of a musical choice by letting certain things breathe and i feel like with a lot of your your compositions there's breath to it um did like is that a kind of compositional tool you think about do you have any other compositional tools that you aside from like um kind of building off like a, a rhythmic delay um that you find yourself using in this right uh, with uh with uh, this recent release of hidden drives yeah i mean it's it is i don't know how to say that you know i really generally don't know you know what um you know what happens when that note pops out there you know only that i kind of like it and you know that's the way it should be but i you know right. going back several decades i might have thought to myself gee i would like to I should try and understand some of this or, you know, since I, uh, you know, do work for a university, I could be, uh, you know, feasibly, uh, take some courses and, and learn some of these things. And that just, there comes a time when you're like, that's never going to happen. I'm just going to keep <laughs> yeah. doing what I'm doing yeah. and hope. Um, so, I mean, there's, you know, uh, in some ways, um, you know, you're, you're at a certain level of making music. You're not, if you play it to someone who really understands theory and things, it's like, well, you know, in this, in the song, you're just, you know, playing two chords over and over again, but you're slightly changing the, you're adding this note here halfway through. Right, right. And it's like, well, yeah, that's true. But you know, it, uh, it has a beat. You can dance to it. So, um, uh, it's, uh, so it depends on, uh, it all should come down to just what, you know, what sounds good. And I, I know a lot of, you know, music is just made um, originally was just sort of formulated because, you know, they weren't really thinking about um, sort of the technical aspects of it. Right. But, right. Right. Um, no, I agree with that hundred percent. Like, I don't think like it's, it, it's, it's theory when you try to describe it, you know what I mean? Like, and it, before that, it's just something you play because it sounds right for the moment. And like you know, there's there's good in both. To, there's good and bad to like really putting your mental energy into d- transcribing it or deciding it. Like where you know, um, but the so is that where you did the radio gig at the university? 
Um, yeah, University of Illinois. There's a public radio station here affiliated AM, FM, and television. Okay. And um, what's your show? Uh, um, and uh, in the uh, in the 80s, I kind of uh, uh, got on as a board operator, okay. and so just uh, sort of behind the scenes, tactical, um, uh, very analog, just running a mixing board, and uh, you know, uh, doing. Um, a good amount of uh, running phone interviews uh, had a couple of uh, hour-long interview segments during the day, uh, maybe three and a half hours actually. So it would definitely be. And for some reason, technical director was uh, for some of them. Uh, we did it in a studio where the host and the operator were, you know, sitting across from each other, and so it's a sort of uh, as opposed to. Uh, some interviews where you know they're in another studio, you're right. in the master control room, you can put your feet back, answer the phone, type in where the calls are coming from. But uh, for some of the uh, the the other show was you know you're sort of great, I get to be quiet <laughs> for <laughs> an hour, and uh, someone else is answering the phones in another in the master control room. So it was definitely a, I heard thousands of hours of you know sort of great minds kind of talking about books and you know anything that's awesome um, and i they don't we at some point they you know they had them all uh, archived on cassettes and i don't know if they ever got them all you know if anyone's interested yeah. i mean there's so so much material right. i did also um i was also working with a um, in another part of the station, we had a uh, a jazz show or a live jazz show on Saturday nights. And so in addition to just a uh, someone spinning records, uh, we would go out into the community and record an entire night's uh, three sets of jazz. And then um, uh, my boss would uh, compile it down into a jazz, live jazz show. And uh, we did that for most of the 90s until, you know, just sort of budget cuts and yeah. uh, the scene and things like that caused us to kind of scale back on that. That's a sick gig though. Like to be like to, to be forced to listen to like people who are educated on their topic, like yak about it and go see jazz concerts. What a rat. That's I'm sure there was a yeah. lot of not so rad stuff, but that's a cool gig. Yeah, it was, it was a, it was a very uh, interesting time and I, I really enjoyed, uh, any notable uh, notable uh, uh, in- interviews that you uh, were part of? Switching um, it? No, not really. <laughs> They're all sort of a blur, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but you know, it was always you know, and I I was you know completely removed from the uh, the uh, the scheduling and and all that sort of thing. So it was just uh, pretty much you know looking at the schedule, seeing what was going to happen that week. Um, so there's never, I think, uh, <clears throat> I think, uh, I sort of traded off with another operator for the master control shift. And so this week, that week, so I don't think that I was on the board when, uh, uh the focus, uh, show gotcha. interviewed George Martin. So I wasn't uh, on the board that day, um, uh, but that you always, cool. yeah. Um, at the end of the interview, you always kind of picked up the line and if they were still there, you know, said, you know, well, thanks for joining us or here the producer wants to talk to you and hand the phone off. But so, yeah, I didn't get to talk to George Martin, unfortunately, but there were, they did, you know, they did have some fairly 
uh, notable people coming through on the main, mainly phone interviews. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. That's good. It's kind of serendipical. We're doing it now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so to kind of shift gears and go back, uh, when did the moon seven times, like when did that project picked up, pick up? Um, so, um, you know, this, uh, I mean, it was really kind of an important, uh, an interesting step um, after the Van Ack Act to be working with um, Steve Jones, the keyboardist and uh, guy who ran the record company, and um, uh, Lynn Canfield, who had been the sort of uh, keyboardist and um, sang a little bit uh, in Ack Act. She suddenly sort of started writing songs and uh, lyrics and singing, and Aria did a couple of records and. Um, there was a point where um, sort of uh, Steve Jones moved away from Champagne, and it just sort of uh, Moon Seven Times started to form when um, uh, Brendan Gamble, who was the uh, the drummer who joined ACAC when I was uh, in the band, um, he had been doing uh, other projects in Champagne, playing in bands, and uh, then uh, we just sort of got back together again and kind of uh, recorded two songs with guitar sort of the uh, sound that I'd been uh, somewhat playing with area uh, with his uh, very intricate kind of uh, uh, beats or just the, the way he plays and composes on drums. But also uh, since he plays guitar, keyboards is sort of, uh, I think he brings that to the drumming that he, that he does so that uh in the late 80s, we kind of did these two songs, and Lynn uh, Canfield uh, wrote and sang uh, on those and sort of started to think that we would come up with an album, and it eventually became uh, The Moon Seven Times. And uh, we, uh, a label in London, Third Mind Records, had licensed one of the area records from uh, C'est L'Amour, the uh, New Orleans um, or the uh, Louisiana record company who had put out a couple of the area records. And so we got in touch with the London record company and they, um, they were interested. And so we sort of started um, the process of recording a moon seven times record for them. And by the time a few years later that it actually came out, um, he had been bought by Roadrunner records, which was sort of a hard rock uh, yeah. label from Amsterdam and, uh, so sort of it it took some time we we recorded the moon seven times record in 1980 the summer and because of sort of the purchase of third mind records and uh his search for a big a, a label to take him over um the moon seven times record didn't come out until the spring of 1983 so it was this it seemed like a very long time back then um, it, it wasn't so long in today's terms, but it really did feel like uh, it took us forever to release that first record. And then uh, we did record a second one uh, fairly quickly. God. Well, yeah, because there would have been the time in between. It, it, that, I mean, it is that was a turnaround. I mean, you know, especially and it seemed, it's really interesting with like all these record companies kind of overseas seeing um, picking you guys up. Like it's crazy that to be able to manage that type of deal from, you know, Illinois, like from Champagne, like, um, but so right when that came out, you had the the second one follow right through. 
um, yeah, about about a year, you know, a year later, we had um, the second uh, Moon Seven Times record, Seven Equals Forty Nine, and that one was sort of uh, recorded with you know all the songs we had sort of uh, put together in those intervening couple of years, kind of right. waiting for things to work out with that. Uh, first record but um yes uh, to say something about just uh um you know being in a small midwestern town and you know happening to have uh, uh steve jones and mel um uh, their office records and sort of to learn about uh, hey there's a record company or you know um he's got you know when i go over to his house his apartment there you know 10 boxes uh, filled with LPs of their new record. And, you know, uh, just the, the mechanics of actually putting out, uh, putting out music and how it can be quite a risk sometimes right. if you, you know, how are you going to sell all those <laughs> records? So I think um, while I was still in area, I did make one trip to Europe uh, and went to London in 1989 and did meet with, um, you know, the guy who ran uh, third mind records um, out of his uh, flat and uh, so uh, did get to know him. So it, it it certainly it seemed like we were kind of, you know, uh, just making it up as we went along. But, um, you know, to uh, to get interest from a record company overseas and kind of put that together and uh, figure out a recording budget and record the record. And then, unfortunately, he sort of needed to spend a year or two shopping for a new distributor and, and such. So it was quite a uh, positive time, but also sort of a very agonizing time to have a, uh, you know, 24 track, um, you know, recorded on 24 track uh, album, you know, mixed and ready to go, but, uh, you know, sort of putting on hold for a couple of years until uh, things uh, came together. So certainly uh, shopping around in the United States, you know, we didn't, uh, have any uh we didn't um get anyone who was going to say yes you know we believe in the moon seven times we want to put it out we were still kind of hoping that um third mind would find a distributor which they did in roadrunner and then we could uh, put out the record but in that as i say in that year or two uh, we were free to kind of shop the tapes that we'd made and you know and never really found uh, that anyone kind of were like, you know, yes, we're going to do this. Let's put this record out uh, since you're free to do it. You know, it's all recorded. Let's go. I, I mean, it's amazing that make be making that up as you go and, and have it pan out, even though like it got it got got a uh, dicey. But like with a that that's incredible. I don't know. Like it seems like now to be able to put something out. And like, just put your music out there. It, it, it seems a lot more easier than than going through a company, which which you know, be, even though it's a lot more easier, it's probably less efficient. But um, because now there's a bigger pool and there's a million things going out, and anyone could do it, as opposed to having like kind of a limiter, where if you made it in, you know, at least it would be be put in front of somebody or put towards uh, someone's a. Uh, uh, um, I'm trying to think of a. I was going to say record player, but I'm not sure if that's the right. Um, it, it would get to their. It would get to their ears somehow. Um, yeah. So. <laughs> so yeah, what a. I mean, what a racket, man! That's awesome, though. That panned out. <laughs> like, what was the, the kind of like uh, the moon seven times? Just the title of that. What does that? Does that mean anything, or is that just like another kind of like? 
it um yeah it just uh came with a um it came from a, a book uh, the golden the golden bow golden bow okay um and uh interestingly i you know we had uh you know decided on a band name uh with you know uh, Third Mind Records in London was interested. You know, it's basically a label run by, you know, just uh, one guy working with PR and such and distribution and such. But so we were, you know, very close with him and we'd, you know, we'd sent him a uh, number of the demos that we were going to record and we needed to get a contract together. And, you know, we, uh, the band have just decided, you know, finally decided on one name. And I remember we, you know, we told them the band is going to be called Cobalt. And so sent it off. I don't think the contracts were ever printed up because he uh, called us and just said, you know, I was looking through a, the, uh, the catalog for this uh, sort of techno label uh, Subway Antler uh, in Europe probably a Belgium company. And, you know, I saw that there's a band called Cobalt that put out yeah. a seven inch or a 12 inch, you know, and so we got to get another name. And so <laughs> I think that did, uh, you know, that did send us to the bookshelf and the moon seven times, um, uh, something about the moon and, uh, or something about the full moon, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. But um, in this day and age, I was finally able to go. I haven't, you know, it's an expensive record, but on Discogs, that site you can find. I, I finally found this. The, Cobalt put out one, I think, three-song uh, LP, and that's it. And you know that—that's what caused <laughs> yeah. us not to be Cobalt, um, <laughs> but uh, caused us to be. Did you get uh, it? To pick a new name. I haven't got it yet because okay. it's it's thirty dollars, but it, it has okay. an interesting name. Um, you know, b ballet mechanique or something. It's a okay. some sort of techno mix. Sounds kind of cool. Sounds pretty. Safe. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Um, so, writing with the moon seven times, that kind of. Um, so now that you've been composing more with a with area, what was it like with the moon seven times? Now that there was more more people in it. Um, is definitely. Uh, uh, just uh, as I mentioned, uh, rehearsing in the basement, um, getting together with uh, uh, Brendan Gamble uh, on okay, drums. So he was just, yeah, yeah. Um, he would just, uh, uh, there was a, uh, there's a song called Straw Donkeys from the first record. Um, it's just, and I had a, uh, had a guitar part uh, with Echo uh, that sort of has a nice, uh, drone to it and just the you know the, just Im immediately the the drum pattern that he comes up with just you know it, it um i guess you know the whole idea of the the first record was just his interplay uh, on the on the musical level of uh, his interplay with the guitar and uh just something that i, I really wanted to explore and uh, so you know we would uh we were all working at the time so you know i'd uh, sort of rehearse with him in the basement uh, and make some cassettes and then give them to uh, singer lynn canfield for her to write lyrics and and vocal melodies and so i mean 
I don't know that before we recorded the first record that we actually had our schedules had worked out so that we could actually get together in the basement and run through the songs all. I mean, we may have recorded our first album just um, by necessity, just sort of uh, cutting the drums and the guitars and the vocals um, all at, uh, at different times. And so uh, that was definitely something I wanted to, um, as I mentioned, the uh, as far as my musical ideas, uh, you know, just uh, working with uh, Brendan Gamble, the drummer, was just so important. And, you know, he, you know, being uh, keyboard uh, guitarist, um, you know, then started, you know, sort of writing ideas. And uh, I would just sort of pretty much, you know, integrate my guitar parts into or, you know, play his guitar parts. So there's definitely many, uh, many writers in the band and uh, uh, bass player Don Gerard also uh, playing uh, a part in writing uh, a lot of the songs. So it, I mean, ironically, the Moonstone Times was uh, just starting. Um, and in that period that uh, I mentioned where we were, our label was shopping for a distributor and financing. Um, I did, uh, once again, with Brendan Campbell from the Moon Seven Times, I did sort of decide, you know, I've got these other, you know, pieces, or I, I want to record this cassette, a 90-minute cassette with just some longer uh, guitar ideas. And I guess I may have had so many songs in my notebook that it was like, well, you know, those aren't Moon Seven Times songs. Uh, I'm just going to do something with these other ones. And so, um, ironically, about you know, 30 years ago, May of 91, um, I did rehearse some songs with uh, Brendan Gamble on drums and we uh, we did cut uh, sort of the drum tracks and guitar that would be the first Lanterna record. Um, and uh, so, and it was just kind of a, I think I had the name, but it was just like, just, you know, uh, record some longer songs. Don't worry about, you know, any sort of pop uh, mentality. Um, just sort of uh, get something down and and so uh, we recorded in a couple of days the drums and I overdubbed and then I put together this kind of uh, 90 minute cassette with a photo booklet and a box set and that's, that's what cool. I had um, so uh, a side project going um, during the time that I was um, in the moon seven times although I didn't record any new music the um, ironically I uh, recorded that uh, cassette box and then uh, a, a Greek label wanted to put out, you know, 500 records and uh, put out an LP version and then Parasol Records here in Urbana put out a CD of uh, the first Lanterna group of songs and then Disc, this uh, sort of CD only label uh, back in the day in the 90s, uh, they licensed it in 1998 and uh, put out a, another a reissue edition, uh, which is now uh, still in the, the uh, Rhino Records catalog, I guess. Uh, Record has became part of uh, Warner Music Group. Nice. So was Lanterna, was that like, was that more freeing having this outlet now? Like comparative writing, sorry, I, I cut you off. Yeah. <laughs> No, no, go ahead. No, compared to like writing for and with a group, was that like a more freeing like? Yeah, I, you know, as I said, I must have had just some some ideas that I, or just something uh, that I did want to 
this kind of um, a small project. I mean, now that I was hopefully, you know, in a band, uh, uh, Moon Seven Times, that you know, for some reason I, you know, suddenly wanted to do just a little bit more. And I mean, I was definitely uh, um, uh, still writing with Brendan Gamble on those uh, sort of uh, half of the songs on the first Land Turner record. And uh, uh, Lynn Canfield did write some lyrics for me uh, for one song. And uh, so it, it was definitely, you know, uh, there was a lot of uh, association with uh, the Moon Seven Times, but it was just kind of something to, to have uh, going. And I'm, gotcha. you know, I'm glad I kind of started on it and um, reissued those first songs a bunch of times in the 90s and then finally got around to uh, saying, OK, I need to, it's been 10 years. I need to do a, a second <laughs> record. And I'm glad I kind of got started uh, making uh, new Lanterna records instead of just reissuing the same one over and over. With a with the name Lanterna, is that like a? Is, I mean, what's that? Does that stand for anything? Like I know I, I don't know why with all these groups that you're in that you the names are so interesting, and I I, I can't put my finger on it. Um, I it is um the uh, Italian word for uh. Uh, sort of actually if the uh, uh, Italian word for like a lighthouse or a okay. ship's light or actually the the song on the new Lanterna record called uh, Cupola, uh, which is uh, sort of those old houses that have those, uh, I don't know why they design them, but um, there's a house across the street that has a cupola, just a, a small windowed room at the top with a, a oh. weather vane at the top. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, so uh, that's kind of that architectural uh, structure, I think, is called a lanterna in um, in Italian. I, I was just speaking to someone earlier in the week, and you know, I I think um, uh, the bass player from Akak was living out in New York, and I think I went out there. He took me to this restaurant called Lanterna, and I was speaking with someone just earlier in the week, and she was like, "Oh, I know that place. I go there all the time. And I love that restaurant. It's on." You know, it's on Bleecker or um, so uh, I, I used to think like, oh, no, you know, they're going to they're going to come get me if I, I, <laughs> I nicked their restaurant's name for my band name. But um, it uh, uh, it, you know, it seemed to be a nice name uh, I'd like uh, the you know, it's just a couple of letters. It's just one uh, thing. And um, it is hard. I mean. As we've discussed, <laughs> choosing yeah. a band name right. is a somewhat uh, tortuous process, and, and sometimes you just have to—you do get used to the fact that whatever we choose now, you know, it's like from the last forty years of experience, it's going to become what we are. So uh, we really don't need to uh, don't need to agonize too much right. over it, do we? Uh, right. But yes, we do, because you do have to have the most—you know—that that perfect name uh, must be out there, but I'm hoping I don't have to go through that process uh, uh, too many more times. Although I, I do hope to, uh, um, uh, Mike Brosco, my producer of the last 20 years, I have sort of wanted to, uh, do a project with him that was somewhat less, uh, a side project to my side project, uh, <laughs> that would be because I do find, you know, uh, Mike Brosco kind of goes along with me and it's like, Henry, you know, this one took five years and the one before that took a couple of years. Um, he seems to work very fast. He's a guitarist, you know, 
keyboards and just knows i would you know sort of think let's just record 10 songs i'll come in with some ideas just drop them off and and you can you know work with them i can re-record them and then we'll just do something more quickly in the yeah. in the way that most people work these days where it's somewhat easy to uh, to create uh, with all the the tools that are available to us true there's definitely some that make it easier um and it's good to have someone that's kicking you i mean come on let's do stuff yeah <laughs> it's, it's yeah. good to be in that flow of stuff was it so did you guys got any you got any jam sessions planned um no as i say i uh someone recommended him in uh, uh i think it was 2003 um and recorded a record pretty quickly uh and released highways in 2004 and uh, a follow-up in 2006 and then started on the album backyards in 2008 and then um the he decided uh, to move out to Muhammad uh, near this quarry lake. And so uh, uh, he, the studio he designed in Southwest Champaign, you know, those uh, picked up stakes, moved the studio out there and made a studio out there. And uh, now just we finally finished Backyards a few years ago and recorded this new record. Uh, finally, uh, sort of decision was made, hey, let's move back to Champaign. So you know the studio <laughs> he had uh so uh, he is in the process of heading back to uh champagne so that's awesome um, we Packing we have up, talked about that's, yeah, yeah yeah so we've talked about you know definitely wanting to you know uh, start uh you know just set on a, a plan to you know record this in addition to any sort of uh, projects that might have a plan for lanterna in the future but it does say i definitely uh, just being able to sit down with him and, uh, you know, uh, have him know how I work and, you know, push me in, in some ways and others uh, is a really good thing. Um, he was, um, I mentioned Louis Simon, uh, the drummer on Backyards. Um, he he and Mike Brosco were in a band called Proof of Utah, which I think started somewhere in, uh, might have been Athens, Ohio, or oh, okay. uh, they were in college together somewhere. They came to Champaign, started a studio, and um, they uh, they kind of put out a very kind of quirky uh, kind of music. Uh, they put a couple of records out, had some European licensing and all sorts of things. So uh, Proof of Utah was um, their their band and i know that they've been kind of uh, reissuing some things or you know collecting their old tapes and trying to get some things together that's sick i'll have to check them out a lot of a lot of cool stuff comes from athens um yes but awesome man well um hidden drives comes out june 4th right yes all right awesome well henry thank you so much for hanging out with me and chatting with me for uh for like over an hour this has been great um I'm going to hit the pause button. Okay. Awesome. Sounds good. Well, have a great afternoon, and uh, thanks so much for, for talking. Yeah, likewise. You too, man. All right. Okay.